thus far in chapter 1. The first thing we talked about was, of course, under the theme how to follow Jesus, was the message itself that Jesus, um, being the Word, He became flesh and He dwelt among us. And this theme that uh, the incarnation, Jesus coming to earth, is something for us to experience. That the gospel isn't something to just know about, but something to tangibly change your life. And we saw that in the first four verses. And then we talked about the message of dark and light and God being in nature light. And we are to walk in the light. And then last week in verses 8 through 10, we talked about uh, confession and how believers, those who really follow Jesus, they confess and they don't do it um, because they have to or because they do it begrudgingly, but because uh, they joyfully recognize that their acknowledgement of sin uh, and faith in Jesus is where uh, your brokenness and his healing collide and the blessing of confession. And tonight, we're talking about two verses as we kick off chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. And these are easy uh, verses to fly over. They are simply kind of a pause in John's exhortation as to what it looks like to follow Jesus. And he doesn't talk a lot about belief tonight, but these two verses are kind of core principles about the gospel. You see, most people familiar with Christianity, and even not, would think that belief is a core foundational pillar to being a Christian. How many of you would agree with that? Probably most of us know you got to have faith. you got to have belief. That's part of being a Christian. Number one on the job description. But the follow-up question is always the more difficult one. Belief in what? Belief in what? There's a lot of things you could believe in. I mean, the Bible's a big book. What, what do you specifically believe in? A couple of weeks ago, uh, as you guys know, we started the project on our driveway. And uh, one of the guys who was kind of heading that up, the foreman, he needed to unload a whole bunch of sand for this. You got to put sand down before you can put concrete down. So tons and tons of sand had to be put down. Um, but we did this mostly on the weekends. And so uh, the, the sand company needed to come during the week and drop off all this sand. We're talking tons and tons of sand somewhere. Well, we didn't have room in our yard, and so he said, can we do it out back of the church? And I said, okay, yeah, it should be fine. And so a sand company um, came and unloaded it, and then we scooped it up, took it to the house. Well, a week later, we needed more sand. And he told me, uh, the foreman did, hey, there's a guy coming. He's going to dump a bunch more sand. Just wanted to give you a heads up. said, okay, sounds great. So... In the middle of the week, um, a couple weeks ago, this guy comes and he says, hello, hey, anyone here? And so I pop my head down out of my office and I say, okay, this is a sand guy. And we talk about what he's doing. He just knows I got to dump the sand. I got to dump the sand. I got to dump the sand. Okay, okay, I know, I know, I know. You'll see out back where there was another sand pile um, off into the grass and just go and just dump it there and everything will be good. And he seemed to really be following along. And I, I, I made sure that he knew exactly where to die. I said, you will see this sand pile. And he walked out, knowing the instructions. He walked out and jumped in his truck. I went back to my office. You ever get that feeling in your stomach? Something ain't quite right. <laughs> like, I don't know if everything was clicking right there. And, and so as he drove his truck back around, I went back out um, and looked out the kid's uh, ministry area, the windows, and I saw him just pull in the middle of our parking lot and unload thousands of pounds of sand, just whoo, everywhere. Took up a whole bunch of parking spots and stopped people from being able to drive like around the parking lot. You know, on a Sunday, we need every single parking spot. I thought, you got to be kidding me. You got to be kidding me. Needless to say, we had to, uh, we had to make arrangements to get the sand off of the pavement and uh, where it belonged. But see, in his mind, he knew, I got one job to do. That is to dump the sand. But placement, <laughs> placement is key. And for Christians, we know belief is a huge part of our faith. It is the faith. But placement is key. And unfortunately, in our Christian culture, we are known to an unbelieving world and placing our faith in a lot of goofy things. In things like um, making sure that uh, people behave just like us. Behavior modification. That's what people think the church is about. Or uh, this time of year, it's especially popular. You see an article, blog every now and then to make sure we got a nativity scene in the public square. 
Or if it's not Christmas time, then it'll be the Ten Commandments in the courthouse somewhere. I'm not saying those things are bad. But that's not what it's about, right? And we have misplaced belief. So tonight, John's going to give us a a few things um, that are key in placing our faith. Now, just so you know, overview of belief, the core tenets of belief for the Christian faith revolve around believing that Jesus lived a perfect life, even when you can't, um, that he was a perfect sacrifice, that his death on the cross was in your place, and that it atoned for your sin, and that his resurrection Uh, Proving all that to be true is his invitation into new life for all who would call him Lord and follow him. So that's that. that, Those are pillars. Those are huge parts of what we believe in. But here's a few other things tonight that I believe uh, can help you to have rest in Christ and some tangible life change in the gospel. So let's jump on in. First John chapter two verses one and two. Two verses, but we're going to stop four times, so we're going to get our fill here tonight. First half of verse 1. Of course, if you ever are sitting along in a sermon or you see someone teaching and you see an A or a B behind a verse, that's simply saying the first half of the verse or the second half of the verse. This is the first half of verse 1. It says, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. So that you may not sin. Simple enough. First thing we see though. Is we believe. The hard teachings. We believe. The hard teachings. Couple key words we want to focus on. Children. And may not sin. So children. Is not his physical children. He's writing to. The church in Ephesus. Where he ministered. But this is a. Like many letters. In the New Testament. A circulating letter. That would go to. Many other groups of Christians. So it is. In its basic context. To the Ephesians. So not his literal children. But his spiritual children. And then number two. To you and I. To all Christians. And so he's stopping himself. Because what he said in chapter one. Was kind of difficult. It was like, if you want to actually follow Jesus, you've got to walk in the light. You've got to confess and agree that God said you are a sinner. You need him. It was kind of hard. And now he's just pulling back for a second, still with those same thoughts in mind, and saying, listen, listen, my children. I'm not just this mean guy from the outside trying to give you a hard time. I love you, and what I'm saying has a purpose. I want you to pause, and I want you to listen to me. Of course, then he says, that you may not sin. That you may not sin. That's the goal, that we wouldn't sin. Of course, knowing that uh, he wants us to obey what he said in chapter 1. So he's saying, I- I'm writing these things so you know what to actually obey. To not deny these things. There's a couple key things, though, that I want to focus on in, in this first half of verse 1. And the first is addressed to the Christians, and the second one would be to the world. Now, the first one is to Christians. That essentially summed up what John is saying is, listen guys, I get it. My teachings are hard. The New Testament, Paul's teachings, they're hard, but they're for your own good. I'm writing this so that you don't sin. And sin, remember we talked about last week, is anything contrary to God's will. Like I want you to line up with God's will. And you need to know, it's not easy. That's why I'm pausing to say that you're my children, I love you. But it is not easy. It's hard and it's for your own good. The whole purpose is that he doesn't want you and I to be ignorant. He doesn't want us to just mosey our way through life and find out on the day that we die that we were completely missing the boat. That like we thought we knew what following Jesus was about, but we didn't. That'd be a rude awakening. And he's saying, I, I, care, I care too much about you to let you just go through this faith without knowing what this is really, really all about. You see, Christians not only have to believe, but they've got to accept hard teaching. And on top of that, they've got to believe that the hard teaching is actually good for them. You see, many, I think, confuse um, the good news, the gospel, with easy. Doesn't that 
sound like something that can be confusing? If someone says, hey, hey, you know, you know all about religion and about doing everything right and, and making sure that you're perfect before God. I got good news. And we tell you about Jesus and dying on the cross. And it sounds like, wow, this is the easier of the two. Like if I can either spend my life in some kind of religion, getting my act together, or I could just place my faith in this Jesus and what he's done. Sounds way easier, doesn't it? Because it feels like the alternative is that we got to be great, perfect people. But there's nothing easy about the gospel. There's nothing easy about the gospel. Does it provide rest? Absolutely. Is it the way better option to religion? Absolutely. But it's not easy because it costs God everything. And he says the gift is free, but I'm asking you to give up everything as well. It's hard. Think about some of the teachings of Jesus. The things that we don't often hear preached. He says, whoever doesn't hate their mother and father cannot be my disciple. They can't follow me. Now, as you know, if you've heard that talk, he's not saying you actually literally have to hate them. He's saying you've got to be able to deny them and their will to follow me. Like you've got to be 100% sold out to me. He tells us, you've got to count the cost. <laughs> that means this is going to be hard, right? He says, no builder is going to build a project. He's not going to start a project without first counting the cost. No military commander is going to go into battle without first counting the cost. And I'm telling you, if you want to follow me, you better count the cost. It's going to cost you everything. He, he tells us, whoever doesn't deny themselves daily. That means you've got dreams, you've got goals, you've got hopes, you've got opinions, you've got relationships that you really want to work out. Maybe God's saying, that ain't my will. You've got, you got places you really want to live. You've got a retirement that you can't wait to get to. You've got a comfortable lifestyle you hope to live. And he's saying, if it ain't my will, then daily you've got to wake up and choose to deny chasing after those things. This is hard stuff. This is hard stuff. And why? Why does it got to be this way? Why are the teachings so hard? Well, anytime you try to bring holiness into a broken world, you know it's going to be rough. When you got yourself buried deep in some muck and some mire, it's rough. Anyone who goes to the hospital, goes to, to a surgery, and you know you're in a place of brokenness, what is that doctor going to tell you? He's going to say something along the lines of, hey, the road to recovery is long, and it's going to be hard. It's going to be slow, but it's worth it. And spiritually, walking away from a life of sin to follow Jesus, even though he empowers us, even though he draws us and compels us, is still rough. If it ain't rough, you ain't been walking on that, that path. It's hard. It's hard. Second thing. First one, he's obviously writing to Christians. But the second thing that we learn in just this first half of the verse is to the world. And he's saying, you may not sin. He's telling the church this, but what this is saying is, there's a very clear, distinct difference between right and wrong. There's objective truth. Our culture, more than ever, hates objective truth, does it not? You think about our government and you think about the culture as a whole and laws changing. If you really boil things down to what that whole agenda is about, not to go super deep into it, it's about making sure that nobody can ever tell you that you're wrong. That for you, whatever your truth is, whatever you want, whatever happiness is to you, that you should be able to do it. And so we tear apart marriage, we tear apart gender, we tear apart, you name it. Because nobody wants to be told they're wrong. Everyone wants to be able to do whatever makes us feel right. At least on that side of the agenda. Our culture hates objective truth. This is why Jesus tells us that the road to destruction is wide. And how many will find it? Many. But the narrow road that leads to life, 
A few will find. Let me ask you, as you're talking to God, as you're reading God's word, does he ever tell you something that just doesn't sit well? Does he ever tell you to obey something that you're like, I don't know. That's difficult. Maybe maybe it's an answer to prayer. Or you didn't hear him answer, and you know that is the answer. Maybe it's something you heard in a sermon. Maybe it's a scripture you read, and you just see that, and you're like, I have a hard time justifying this truth. This is a hard teaching. I mean, just even... uh, Simple personal example. Now, this isn't an objective truth. This is my prayer life, and I am subject as a flawed person to hear wrongly from God, right? Um, but I remember when we first started this process for searching for the worship leader, I hadn't been through tons and tons of those kinds of HR stuff before, um, but I had been a little bit. And I guess I was hoping, I was assuming that this was going to be a quick, easy process. I mean, we're a growing church. Um, we, we seem to do pretty well at, at training up leaders, uh, but I figured, man, uh, six weeks, six weeks in, we should at least know kind of where it's going, right? We should have a, a few good candidates. And I remember even in the early stages, as I was praying to God, very clearly he was telling me, this is going to take a long time and I'm going to refine the whole church. Like the first couple times I heard that in prayer, I just said, mm, mm, maybe I'm ate a burrito that was nasty at lunch. Like, maybe something's wrong. I'll just pretend that, I'll hope that wasn't God. Right? I'm wrong sometimes, right? And and then, almost every time, I'd pray about it after that, even to this day. He says, I'm going to refine you. I don't even know what he needs to refine us of. Like, that's how clueless I am. I'm looking like, what's wrong? Do we idolize worship leaders? What's happening in the church? I don't really know exactly what he's saying he's refining us of, but I know what he seems to be telling me now i don't know we've been four months in now three four months in um i don't know how long it's going to last but i I do know it was hard for me to stomach you ever have something answered in your prayer life that's just hard to stomach i would venture to say this if you don't if everything that you ever hear about god or from god is, is just nice and sweet and rosy and keeps you in a comfortable place you're probably not hearing much from god at all because if you're a human and you live in a broken place and you got flaws and you're saying, I want to move you into reflecting my holiness, it's going to be tough. Don't trick yourself into thinking that everything God will ever tell you is going to be sweet and nice. Good parents don't ever just tell you everything you want to hear because they know what's best for you. You've got to believe the hard teachings. Second part of verse 1. But if anyone does sin, that's a, I don't know if that's a very big if, right? I think, I think we're all pretty convinced uh, we're going to make up. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. That's the whole theme for tonight. We've got an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ, the righteous. Now, second thing we see is you've got to believe that Jesus has your back. This is where I said earlier that to believe in these things, you're going to find some rest in Christ. You're going to find some tangible change. You've got to believe that Jesus, on a daily basis, has your back. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying he's a genie in a bottle. right? I'm saying we've got to align ourselves with his will. So this isn't just, hey, I could do whatever I want in life, and Jesus is going to support it. No, no, no. That ain't him. But when it comes to sin before the Father, he's got your back. Two key words, advocate and righteous. Advocate is the Greek word paraclete. Now, for those of you in the school system, do you have any paras? What does a para do? Helps you, yeah. A para helps those in need. So the Greek word paraclete, it means a helper. Jesus is a helper. In the Gospel of John, we see the same word advocate talking about the Holy Spirit. This isn't a word that's commonly used in the New Testament. So it's interesting that John uses this. He says, 
You got an advocate. You got a helper. You got someone in Jesus who can help you. This is beautiful. It doesn't matter what you're struggling with. If you're aligning with his will, he will help you. If you're struggling with finances, if you're struggling with relationships, whatever you're struggling with, Jesus says, I will help you in aligning yourself with the Father's will and standing before the Father in your sin. Even when you're struggling with God himself. That's the context of this verse, is it not? If any of you sin, if any of you got issues with God himself, Jesus will help you. He'll help you. Now there's a second meaning to it in that we've, we've been talking in chapter 1 about um, the legal side of things. This idea of God as a judge and us in a courtroom and us um, being the, the defendant and God essentially having a lawsuit against us because of our sin, right? And an advocate is a legal representation, right? So it's going to fight for you. It's going to fight for you. And the word righteous is key because this is the qualification that Jesus has. This isn't just anybody. John's saying, Jesus can do something that your friends can't. Jesus can do something that, that your mama can't do. Jesus is the Christ. The king is what the Christ means. He's the righteous one. Righteous the legal jargon here, the righteous means the full requirement of God. So Jesus, through his death, has paid the full requirement of God. He has earned the right to be an advocate for you. So, do you believe, not just in general, but like even today, I don't know what you're going through today, do you believe that when you mess up, and you stand before God that Jesus has your back? You see, I think it's easy to trust him once. Whether it be kids camp, whether it be sitting here and cross training, whether it be you name the place. You hear the gospel and you say, oh, so I, I need to place my faith in Jesus. Jesus can save me. He, he can stand before me and the Father. He isn't just going to represent me, but he's going to say, I'm going to pay the price for him in his place. And you guys have heard all of the illustrations about it. It's one thing to trust him once, but what happens in the life of a believer daily when you find yourself with a heart and a desire to actually follow God? You find yourself making the same mistakes over and over and over. Even that eats at a person, doesn't it? Man, we're going to get to some verses in John later that are going to scare you, talking about those who habitually sin. But for some of us, we've got spiritual strongholds in our lives that just keep knocking us down. We say we're not going to yell at that person, and we try to get calm, and we try to have peace, but then, man, we're in the moment, and we just yell at them. We say we're not going to take that drink, but then, you know what? I don't feel like I got any options right now. We take that drink. We all have strongholds that God wants to break through, that Jesus can break through. And the guilt builds when you find yourself making the same mistakes over and over. You see, John knows that we're going to sin, and this sin is so serious that you need more than a friend. You need an advocate. Let me let me put that into perspective. When I um, when I got charged with two felonies, what am I thirty two? Fourteen years ago. Wow. Um, I didn't want to go to prison. That's crazy, huh? Right. I, I did not want to. And I remember uh, my dad, who loves me. Uh, I remember he being the first one. <laughs> to show incredible disappointment in me the night I came home and I walked through the living room. I had never seen that kind of disappointment. I mean, my mom was uh, president of the school board in our tiny little town. And I mean, just we had so much investment. We had 20 years in living in this town of 150 people. All of a sudden, your kid comes home. You still got kids coming through the school system after me? You had ones that gone before me? And I come home from... A felony arrest and our reputation was shredded but yet he also said we're gonna we're gonna take money we don't even have we're gonna pay ten thousand dollars for lawyer the best lawyer we can find 
He, he also uh, lectured me, but comforted me. He also sat in that courtroom when I was sentenced to three years in the state prison, but able to serve most of it on probation and two months in jail. And I turned around and I looked at him as the guards led me out, and I remember just brokenness on his face, and yet he's the same dad who came to visit me when I was in jail. You see, he did everything he could on earth to help me out. But guess what? He couldn't really stop me from the punishment I had coming my way. Most people in this room, most, probably have some folks in your life, shoulders to cry on. People that when times get hard, you can lean on them. Maybe you got friends or family that have vouched for you, that have supported you through thick and thin. I hope you do. But you of all, if you're like me, have come to the place where even those who love you the most lack power to truly, truly change life. They can help in a lot of ways. And so it's hard because we need more than a friend. We need an advocate. And it's really difficult for those maybe in this room or listening online who didn't grow up with a dad or a mom or a support system. And you've got broken relationships where you were ostracized. And you've had many, many nights where you thought to yourself after sin, like, all right, I got nobody in my corner. Nobody's fighting for me. I got to, at an early age, learn how to battle and fight for myself. And then I come here and say, oh, God wants to be your advocate. And you say, advocate? I haven't had an advocate my whole life. Matter of fact, I've had only the opposite of advocates. That when times got hard, people ran from me. For you, it's really hard to believe when God says, I want to be your advocate. But why is this so important? Because nothing hurts more than knowing you have sinned against God and you feel lonely and you're standing before the judge. But God's saying, In that moment, I want you to know my continued presence in your life by saying that there's an advocate that won't leave you, that will fight for you. Uh, God is the judge and the defense lawyer, and he is the jury. He's the whole nine yards. Let me take it a step further. Knowing that I didn't want to go to prison back in the day, we ponied up all that money, money that I don't even know if we had, to get the best lawyer we could possibly find. At the time, DNA was just starting um, to become a popular thing to overturn convictions and stuff. They had new tests and, and different things. This was the early 2000s. And he had just helped a guy who had been convicted of rape uh, get out of prison after 30 years of being falsely convicted of a rape because of a DNA test. He had a great reputation. And he was the best guy we could find. So we paid all this money. I met with him several times. We talked. I could tell. Now, I'm a punk 18-year-old at this point. I could tell he didn't really like me. I wouldn't have liked me back then as well, but he didn't really like me. And I could tell his passion for my case went from, hey, we can knock this thing out, to I'm just getting paid to be here. And by the time things came to then, he didn't really fight too much for me. I later got sued by one of the victims, and he fought then. But when it came to the prison and the the jail time and all that, he didn't do a ton for me. I think in the back of some of our minds, we know, yeah, okay, this whole legal stuff, Jesus is my advocate. He's interceding for me before the Father. Um, I go to the Father, but through Jesus, we can process some of that. But deep down, deep down, we know, okay, yeah, I hear all the time, God loves me. And he'll advocate for me. But does he like me? You ever ask yourself that? You ever feel that? Like, I know God loves me. Cross proves that. And I know he's my advocate, so I can come to Jesus. But does he like being my advocate? Does he like me? Let me give you just a few. If you're struggling to believe that God likes you, as simple as that might sound, let me give you just a few reasons why. Uh, biblically, we see God does. Number one, think about the chief goal of all of life, to bring God glory, but primarily through what? 
through an intimate relationship with the Father. That's the whole reason Jesus died, was so that you were not be separated from the Father for eternity. We hear about the, the basic core principles of, of following Jesus to, to abide, to be in Jesus. Everything that God wants in life for you is to be in him, to have an intimate relationship. You don't desire that kind of relationship with humanity unless you actually like them. How many of you want an intimate relationship with someone that you don't like? Didn't get any hands raised on that one, right? Second, look at his life. Jesus had a lot of things going on in his ministry. And yet, his willingness that you see throughout all four Gospels to heal. He, he came to women who no one else liked or wanted to be around. And he said, no, I'm going to go out of my way to go to you. He went to people who had health issues for years and years and years. He went to uh, blind men and beggars and people that everyone else in society said, we don't really like them. <laughs> we don't really want to be around them. And he said, men, they're going to write about me in this book and a whole bunch of what they're going to say is when I left the cool group <laughs> to go hang out with people that no one else liked. Why? Was he just being a Mr. Nice Guy? No, you got to believe that he actually liked people. And number three, he calls us friends. Jesus calls us friends. What does that say about God? You ever, you ever just ponder that? What does that say about God that Jesus calls us a friend? How many of you call people friend that you don't actually like? And best of all, even though there's many more truths than just these three, all of them existed long before you got your act together. God does not like your sin, right? But he likes you. He likes you. He didn't die to show love for you without actually liking you as well. This might be simple, but I think for a lot of us, this is a, this is a big deal. Verse 2, he is the propitiation for our sins. It's a big church word. Third thing we see is that you've got to believe Jesus paid the full price. Key word here, what do you think the key words are going to be in this one? Propitiation, yeah, that's a big fancy church word there. It means a couple things. Propitiation isn't just... Um, a sacrifice or uh, an atonement, it is directly related to the wrath of God. You see in the Old Testament, there, there's a cup of wrath that God has for mankind because of our sin. That God doesn't just look at sin and say, yeah, you know what, I kind of designed things in such a way, I'm, I mean, I'm kind of indifferent towards it, but in such a way, um, you can't really be with me when you sin. No, he, he says, I hate it. He has wrath for sinners. And so this is what we're all facing is the wrath of God. And so when Jesus died on the cross, he became an offering to God to appease his wrath. That's what propitiation means. It is a gift or an offering to appease wrath. And there's no in-between with God. There's no, well, he either feels wrath towards me or... He um, is pretty indifferent. It's either, no, he, he has favor on you or he has wrath. And so this is two-sided. It is Jesus paid the price to appease God for the wrath that you deserve. But it also shows that God has favor on you. That he has favor on you. You ever offer someone a gift to appease wrath? I remember when we first started that concrete project, and we've got good relationships, I should say, um, with our neighbors. We've got good folks around us. But the morning we started the concrete project, um, the foreman came to me and said, hey, real quick, since we're extending your driveway a little bit, it's actually at the very end by the curb. It's going on to your neighbor's property a couple feet. So you're just going to have to go have them sign this paper to make sure that's okay. (laughs) Now, again, I got a good relationship with my neighbors, but how many of you have had an experience with a neighbor when it comes, like you can talk to them all day long, 
You can high five as you're getting home from work, whatever you want to do. But when it comes to like messing with each other's property, usually doesn't go super well. Especially when it means I'm giving you less property and I'm expanding my property. How do you feel about that? So I went over there and talked to him with a few prayers in my belt. And, um, and he was cool with it. Um, but I came there saying, hey, you know, you got some, some trees that are overgrown. You mind if I just cut those down for you? Can I just knock that out for you? And, and hey, since we're building this driveway over here, I want to make sure that you don't ever have any drainage issues. We got some dirt. You mind if I put dirt around your foundation, just build it up a little bit? He said, yeah, actually, I got some, some areas in the back I need dirt. And, you know, we'll take care of that as well. We'll take care of that. Why? Because I don't know if there's going to be wrath, but I'm going to appease it beforehand. God is appeased by what Jesus has done. Have you ever felt like in life um, that the pain that you have, that you deserved it? And not just from a worldly standpoint, but that God wanted you to feel this pain. You ever feel that way? That the bad stuff is something you deserve? Sometimes when I'm ministering to uh, people who want to harm themselves, people who are suicidal, uh, teenagers who cut themselves, um, people who, who just want to harm themselves, I'll notice, um, I'll notice a couple things in almost all of them. When it comes to their self-worth and value, they usually always think at least two things. Number one, I cut myself or I hurt myself because I deserve it. In their minds, they feel like they have failed people. They feel like they've messed up to the extent that like physical pain is what they need. And number two, there's no way I deserve love. There's no way. From an outside perspective, you say, how could someone physically harm themselves? But it's with that kind of thought process that people get there. And the beautiful thing is, isn't that mercy and grace the opposite of those? That we do deserve bad things, and God's saying, I'm going to withhold it from you. I'm, I'm putting it on your, my son. And you don't deserve love, but I'm going to give it to you anyway, because I created you to be loved by me. And that's grace. That's grace. So, let me ask you this. Do we... And we've talked about this in the past, but it's good to bring this back up. Do we, as Christians, get punished by God? Well, from a worldly sense, yeah. Like, if you go commit a crime, you might have to go to jail. And God can forgive you all day long, but there's a justice system, right? But in the spiritual realm, we don't get punished as believers. We get disciplined. And I want to ask in your life right now, is God disciplining you in something? Is, is he disciplining you in a way that maybe feels like punishment? And in your moments of doubt, you think to yourself, it feels like God's punishing me. You see this all the time. People who, um, who have sexual sin prior to marriage, uh, if they have fertility issues, if they go through divorce, if they have intimacy issues with a spouse, oftentimes they'll tell you, I think it's because of what I did before marriage. God's punishing me for that. Or for someone who maybe lost a child or a loved one, and they wonder why, and they think, well, I, I was mean, and I did things in my childhood or, or in high school or college, um, and I think God's punishing me for that. People think that on a regular basis and it will destroy the rest that you have in Christ. It makes you feel like, and I'll ask you, do you feel like God's out to get you a little bit? Because what this means is that the wrath of God has been satisfied 100% by Jesus Christ and his death on the cross. That God isn't here to punish you. He's here to discipline you. This is a huge difference because here's the difference between punishment and wrath. Punishment 
Punishment and discipline. Punishment comes from wrath and it leads to destruction. Discipline comes from love and it leads to building you up and refining you and sanctifying you. They might feel the same, but the background is completely different. Completely different. A couple days ago, Tara, she baked a bunch of cookies and candy stuff. And, you know, it's the holidays. So, um, you know, she's taking these things in little packages to our neighbors and, and a whole bunch of people. So she had a whole bunch of these little cookie, homemade cookie packages um, up on the counter. And Silas, you know, that little rascal, he was eyeing them all day. And I was thinking to myself, we better just go deliver these because he's going to, in a moment of weakness, he is going to, to do something. And he had been saying he wanted those cookies up there. And Tara and I walked out of the kitchen. Why do I have so many of these stories? I'm just realizing this, us walking out of the kitchen and him doing something is usually makes it in every sermon. We walked out of the kitchen and we heard a crunkle, crunkle, crumple, like, like some kind of wrap getting crumpled. And we're like, uh-oh. We came in there. He had climbed up taken one of them off and he had stomped it all to pieces and i had seen when tara (laughs) she had all these cookies and stuff just crumbled on a plate and i was like what happened to that that she said that's your son that's what he did he just he just ripped them to shreds i don't know why i don't know i I honestly don't know i can't psychoanalyze a three-year-old but he he um he did it and i and mom were obviously kind of ticked off but we realized you know what we're going to discipline him. We're not going to punish him. We're going to discipline him. To him, he don't know the difference, right, at this point. And so um, we had him do, you know, certain kids respond to certain things differently. He hates timeout. Like some kids are like, timeout, whatever, that's not punishment. But for him, if he has to go stand with his nose like in the wall, um, like in the corner for two minutes, he feels like he's been cut off from access to God. Like he just hates it. And so I said, Sai, you got to go stand over there and see who he goes. And he stands and he's, oh, he's whining and crying and doing all kinds of stuff. And, and at first, for the first minute, I was telling him, Sai, buddy, I love you. And you got to learn your lesson. And I was telling him to think about things and whatnot. And the fact that I was 10 feet behind him ticked him off. Like he just couldn't, oh, he was so angry. He would, he would do this number. He'd look back and say, ah, and he'd yell at me. And like my presence ticked him off. But after another minute, as I was talking to him and consoling him and explaining things as he was facing the other direction, he calmed down. And by the end of it, he was actually comforted by my presence. And that's what discipline's like with God. Is sometimes when we feel pain and we know God is there, immediately we're angry at him because we say, God, why could you, why would you let this happen if you're in my life? You got the power to not make, to make this whole thing go away. But it's his very presence that when we see big picture and we start to calm down a little bit, that comforts us. You see, discipline is pain with God's presence. But punishment is pain separated from God. And Jesus on that cross said, Father, why have you forsaken me? He experienced some separation so that you and I never have to be forsaken. Last but not least. He's the propitiation for our sins and not for our sins only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Fourth thing we see. So we've got to believe Jesus is still enough for everyone. He's enough for the whole world. What he did on the cross is still the answer today as much as it was 2,000 years ago when the earth shook and the veil was torn and dead people came out of their graves and everyone tangibly in the Middle East in that moment knew something crazy just happened on earth the moment Jesus died. And it's still just as powerful and just as much the answer today as it was back then. The word whole, which I don't have highlighted for you, means complete. It means in its entirety. And the world is every person in this whole universe. 
everyone far from God. Jesus is still the answer. John isn't saying that everyone's going to be saved. Scripture lets us know. Man, people are going to rebel. Not everyone is going to want. But he's saying they can be saved. Like this statement is full of hope that Jesus is still the answer for the world. You ever been in a different culture, maybe on a mission trip, maybe just on vacation, but you're in a group of people who has a different religion than you, and you felt like in that moment, you thought, man, nobody here follows Jesus. And you felt like your worldview was so small, kind of make you insecure. Like, wow, in America, most people know about Jesus. They might not follow him, but they at least know about him. It makes you feel so insecure. Maybe you question, gosh, I'm just small. My worldview is small. Or maybe you have a friend or you yourself have been through such a health scare that seemed incurable that you prayed and prayed and prayed, but there was a turning point where you thought to yourself, I don't know if there's any way this could be healed. Or a relationship so broken that you thought, you know what? We're at the point of no return. Like there's, there's no way this thing can be reconciled. And so you start saying to yourself this, I don't know. I mean, I know God can do anything. But like, ah, it's kind of starting to feel like maybe you can't. Just like a, just a smidgen. But John's letting us know his death is enough. For everyone in this whole world to be saved, to be healed, to be reconciled, to change the lives of every single person on earth. You remember when you came to faith as a child, as an adult, in the last couple of weeks, whatever it was, you came believing this. I am broken and my situation seemed hopeless, but I believe that God, through Jesus and his death, I'm just going to place my faith in him. I believe he can save me and absolutely change my life. Like that was in the moment, that was a requirement to come to Jesus was that you had this, this unashamed, just unrelenting belief that Jesus was big enough for anything that you would face. That he could save your soul. And yet what happens? You start walking, even though you've got a living hope inside of you, but you're in a broken world and so you get a little bit skeptical. You see enough people reject Jesus and then you get a little bit bitter. Do you see the evil and the hatred in this world? So it's Christmas time and you know, hey, Jesus came to earth, I get it. It means a lot. But yet, there's people in your life that you stopped praying for. There's situations in your life that you stopped months ago or years ago investing in. And you need to be reminded that Jesus came here 2,000 years ago to enter our mess. And he was the answer then. And we still got messes today. And Christmas reminds us he still wants to come into our mess. And he is still the answer now. Do you have that childlike faith tonight? To believe once again that whatever you're going through, whatever your family, whatever your work, whatever you got going on, that Jesus is big enough. Let me challenge you in a couple things. Number one, You got an opportunity in the next couple weeks to be a light to people who are looking for a light. And let's be honest, they're expecting it from the church. And yet, how many of us, when we leave here, are going to find, let's be honest, a whole bunch of things to complain about in our lives? The holidays are just tense, and some of us complain more in this five-week period between Thanksgiving and Christmas than we do all year long. It's just tense. My challenge to you is to cognitively recognize what you're grumbling about and shift the grumble to a proclamation. Jesus is still the answer. He's still big enough. And I don't have one complaint that he can't cure, or fix, heal, whatever needs to be done. And number two, and we'll do this as we close out right now, I want you to think about that person, that situation that feels hopeless. 
and we're going to pray. I'm going to leave a little bit of time in this prayer for you to renew that childlike faith. Say, God, I, I admit I stopped praying for them. I stopped hoping for them months, weeks, years ago. And I want to renew that. I want to renew that tonight. So let me give you just a little bit of time to think about that. And let's pray. Father, I confess that there are people in my life and my family, there are loved ones, there are people that I encounter through this church, God, that I feel hopeless in their situations, that they're going to turn to you. God, people that the gospel has been shared with and they haven't responded, people that have come to you but then quickly turn their back, people who have rejected it from the very get-go. But God, I believe that Jesus is still big enough to save them. And their past rebellion isn't a sign that they can't be saved. It's just a sign that you're going to get more glory when you do save them. So Father, we pray for those people in those situations right now. God, that Jesus would be welcomed into their mess. That he would stand as an advocate between them and the Father. Not only as the sacrifice for their sin, but the defense for them before the judge. Father, we pray that you would save them and that you'd radically transform their lives. Fill us tonight with hope and this city with hope that only comes from Jesus. It's in his name we pray, and all God's people said, Amen.